Hello everyone, it's October 18th, 2022. This past week, it's been a tough time for some launch providers out there to get their rockets into orbit, namely Skyrora, JAXA, and Firefly. That last one did get to orbit, but its payload came right back. Well, let's get the show into orbit so we can talk about it, and lift off. Enemy through the tower, welcome to episode 381 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Did you guys know that uh, the UAE has a lunar rover? That they're planning to launch like next month. <laughs> oh, next month, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's pretty wild. Oh, that's crazy. There's a uh, a website I kind of only recently discovered, uh, SpaceWatch.Global, and they seem to do a lot of. I like that they. I mean, they're very global <laughs> with their coverage, and so it was through that that I was able to see in their one of their sections that yeah. UAE on track to launch first lunar rover November. So as mm. far as coming in hot, <laughs> UAE is really trying to do a bang-up job because this one is also uh, uh, fully uh, built and developed by uh, an Emirati team. So it's not mm. quite that uh, uh, collaboration with, I think it was a lot of uh, University of Colorado folks for their yep. uh, Mars mission. For the uh-huh. Mars mission, yeah. Well, I mean, that that was kind of the point. Like the the Mars mission was like, a really good foundation, but also like almost an excuse to work with, um, you know, an established uh, university, space university. And the the point was to learn how to do this stuff. And so it's cool that they're starting to develop enough expertise to to do it themselves without having to, you know, rely so heavily on other people. Politically speaking, UAE is, has had a really interesting recent history. Um, some of their intentions and attempts have been, you know, met with good, bad, and mixed success. And it's just, it's really interesting to, to watch a country try to uh, redefine itself so thoroughly. And, you know, wish them luck. It's, it's really cool. I, I, think, I think they're doing a, a pretty good job so far. In the news, uh, rockets are having a tough time launching. Uh, so we've had two failures of uh, some interesting new rockets. Well, one old, one new. Um, first one is uh, the Epsilon failure. So, uh, Dennis, you're the resident, I don't know, Japanese expert, but <laughs> I guess we all talk about <laughs> rockets, but you were able to, I think you said that you were able to do some research that you found some stuff in Japanese that you couldn't find in English. So hopefully you have more for us than uh, what the news articles are you know like giving us because i didn't see much myself no it was it was a it was a constantly uh moving target for me trying to find a payload user's guide uh, I, I thought i found one in english and it was like two pages and gave very little information and then i found a much more extensive one in japanese and so i was going down that road very slowly <laughs> translating like the lines in these tables to figure out you know a specific impulse or i really wanted to find out what some of these stages were made of uh, and then finally, I found uh, uh, a an even larger and bigger uh, payload uh, user's guide in English uh, on Jax's website itself. Mm. And so that one we could, we'll we'll have in the show notes. And that one uh, is everything you could ever want to know probably about an Epsilon rocket. But but yeah, I mean, like you said, this is it's it's an older one um, uh, in in the sense that it's already flown uh, five times. Uh, first flight was almost 10 years ago in 2013, and they had all been uh, previously successful. And this is a, it's not a big looking rocket. I'm always surprised at how these smaller rockets can actually get to orbit, but of course they can. 
you know, it's small, smallish payloads, you know, 100 kilograms or so. It's a four-stage rocket. And so it's got three solids, and then the fourth stage, there's there's a couple different versions that it almost sounds like, but you know, from the different sources that I ran into. But essentially, the fourth stage is not going to be a, a solid anymore and uh, is optional as well. You could just stick to the first three. And so uh, as far as what happened, that's kind of uh, pretty straightforward. It, it had raise three we talked about. For upcoming spaceflight events and seven other payloads and it's going to take them to sun synchronous orbit and so right this is launching in you know the southern tip of uh, uh japan's you know four main islands i'm leaving out okinawa which obviously obviously much much further south but and so it's going to fly basically southbound towards like or over the south china sea and get into the uh, sun synchronous orbit that way if you watch the launch footage i don't know if there was just something going on with the the overlay and the the timing uh because when it reached t minus zero it didn't go anywhere and it only actually launched at what the display was calling t plus one minute and ten seconds so i don't know that's a big difference (laughs) yeah yeah so i don't know if there's uh if that was just a matter of the the editing uh, you know how they wanted to show the display or how they want to show the launch or if it was some weird thing that they sometimes do in, in in launches where i know like shuttle had like these built-in holes where they would purposely stop the clock at like t minus nine minutes and things like that but i never heard of something where yeah we're actually going to launch at t plus one minute ten or if we're not ready at t minus zero <laughs> we're going to still you know just launch whenever we do it a minute and ten you know 70 mm-hmm. seconds later so Anyway, had you guys ever heard of something like this, or you have any idea <laughs> what that probably was? No, because I was thinking, yeah, if, if it's a little bit after T minus zero, there may be like you know a slight hold down period where, but I mean, the engines would normally still light. I I mm-hmm. suspect that it's that it's an issue with their overlay because the bookmarks that they have put in the in the YouTube video are correctly aligned with launch. But yeah, it's odd that it's like. A minute, yeah, like a minute and eight seconds. <laughs> mm. Yeah, Deathkin's also got a good suggestion. Maybe the start of their window was the original T zero, and they slipped it back by a minute, and just forgot to update mm-hmm. the timers on their uh, multimedia system. And Calvin's too pointing out that they, you could hear uh, them doing the countdown in the background, but unfortunately, someone was also speaking in English over that, and you're hearing the ambient noise of a. Uh, I, I don't know. Like I, I was just having trouble keeping track and hearing the countdown, so I couldn't tell whether or not the countdown was correct. And that even though the overlay was, the graphics were saying, you know, T plus, you know, one minute and five seconds. In reality, she's counting down from like three, <laughs> two, mm-hmm. one. I, I couldn't pick that out. Oh, they but. they actually update the timer. Yes, and then twenty seconds after launch, they suddenly yeah, update it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that was a. Uh... That was a broadcast issue. I'd say Occam's Razor, that's a uh, easier explanation, more parsimonious one. No, no, to- totally the right answer. Uh, but how interesting would it be to see a, a launch provider who like, actually used like, a dynamic timeline <laughs> where mm. it does jump around all over the place intentionally? Right. <laughs> really crazy. So, yeah, so, so the, the first stage uh, is a solid, that fi- fired fine. The second stage was also a solid, that fired fine. And then they got to the third stage, which is the uh, the KM-V2C. And it's a uh, it's just like the other two. It's a solid, uh, you know, 
less thrust. Um, as you can imagine, right? it keeps tapering off as you go to higher and higher steps. And uh, it was supposed to do a 90-second burn, and it would be uh, your standard-ish uh, HTPB, uh, hydroxyl-terminated polybutadiene. And that's evidently where the failure occurred. And that's kind of where all the reporting, I guess, stops. <laughs> Maybe not all the reporting. I think NASA Spaceflight talked a little bit about the profile. But what's interesting between the second and third stage is the first and second stages have uh, attitude control uh, thrusters, I think, on them that are able to uh, you know, keep them on their proper trajectory. And then there's actually a spin-up. And so the third stage fires after being spun up to... Uh, uh, one hertz, so basically, you know, spinning around once every second. So after the second stage burnout, they spin it up, and then they do the second and third stage separation, and then third stage ignition. And it was at some point during that, which seems like a more complicated part of the launch profile, where the state third stage failed to ignite. And I don't know, I mean, I feel like solids are pretty reliable, and so I'm, I'm interested to see if they follow up with more details about that yeah it's going to be like the igniter or the the electronics that failed that that solid uh solid fuel is quite happy to burn in the right conditions if i remember from the initial reporting that i had seen right after the failure uh because of that once it was out of the flight envelope they i'm pretty sure yeah it, it had moved outside the flight envelope and then they went and triggered the flight termination mm. system and all the little bits of debris went and splashed down in the South China Sea. So that was that for the or Wow, it's crazy that it was it it was that far away from orbit. Like that that last stage really puts a lot of delta V out, huh? Mm. Yeah, yeah. If 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 uh if I'm yeah, I think in a nominal orbit at third stage burn it'd be something uh, over two hundred kilometers but having a lot more delta V to go. Half your delta V, pretty much. So the solids weren't acting too solid, I guess. No. Let's, uh, let's now talk about the next failure, which is Skyrora. So uh, this one, this is the one that I think was terminated a little bit sooner. Um, but it, but it, it ended up, from what I read, it kind of crashed back down something like, I think I, I read 500 yards off of the coast of Iceland. Yeah, yeah, five, yeah 500 meters down. <laughs> 500 meters, okay, yeah. Okay, so... Exactly where was this launched from? Sorry, so this was launched from Iceland. Okay. Yeah, new new okay. new uh new spaceport for us to remember and think about because I don't know about you guys. Mm -hmm. I never heard of Langanes, Iceland. So so this is a new spaceport, uh, and it is Langanes, Iceland. I don't know, I have no idea how to say that. Uh Icelandic words are hard. Langanes looks like it according to the Wikipedia. But uh not too successful here. So do we have any idea what went wrong with this particular launch? No, it seems that uh, uh Skyrora gave a press statement, I guess, about it. And uh yeah, they just kinda said that there was a problem, uh, or an anomaly. It, that that's just the language that they used. You know, an anomaly happened and this uh the Skylark L is the vehicle. It was supposed to be a suborbital flight, but it was supposed to certainly go higher and further than half a kilometer <laughs> downrange. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it just went and splashed out quickly. They went out to recover it. And so hopefully from there, they'll be able to get, uh, do a little uh, forensic work and figure out exactly what went wrong with it because this one is supposed to be the buildup to test the technology and everything. So that's why it's not terribly devastating that this thing failed. That kind of stuff is going to happen as you try to get your, your main vehicle ready. But yeah, the Skyrora XL is the one that they're they're really 
trying to sell and make a big deal about. And that's going to be the first vertically launching rocket from the UK. And they're hoping for next year to be able to, uh, to fire this thing. So, But not from the UK, right? From the UK. From the spaceport in, was it Scotland? So there's actually two up there. There's actually two of them that are not that far from each other, but they're both up north in Scotland. One of them, I think, is like super north, and one of them is still more in the mainland. Is the farthest north one uh, Saxivord? Saxivord is one of them, for sure. And then Sutherland, I think, is the other. And it's also known as Space Hub Sutherland. Yeah, so Sutherland is still on the mainland, while Saxivord is way off on like the northernmost island, it seems, uh, if I remember correctly. Mm. And and that one is where Skyrora would launch from. So way, way, way tippy top of the UK. So this is a latitude well over 60 degrees north. So in the uh, Skyrora L video, or uh, sorry, Skylark L video, the engine seems to pulse as, you know, for the brief second that you can see it uh, between the pad and out of frame. And it's got a bunch of shock diamonds, which makes sense. It's it's going to be underexpanded. But the the flickering has got to be uh it's got to be an artifact of the video, right? No, there's like multiple frames where you can't see the the light from the exhaust plume, and I then thought it- like mm. one. Yeah. Okay. So if you if you go frame by frame, when the vehicle first lifts off the pad, you can't see a plume, and then there's one or two frames where you can see uh like a white or a blue flame. And then it pops into full orange. And I think there's maybe one or two other frames where you can see it in blue. But it looks like it's pulsing. Like, I, is, I don't see is a that way flickering that this is... or is that clouds? No, that's... Yeah, it, it can't be the clouds because the clouds are moving smoothly. And it's... Yeah. But yeah, I'm glad you bring up the, the, the launch itself. Because yeah, not only does it look like there's flickering, which seems kind of weird. Mm-hmm. To, dis- to say that it's due to the clouds. Because even though the clouds are moving smoothly, they're still clumpy, I guess. So it could kind of yeah. be a little chaotic. And the, the entire plume appears and disappears at the same time. Yeah, that's true, too. I mean, that would have to Within be Within very... this frame rate. Yeah. So I think it really is flickering because there's not going to be these vertically aligned windows <laughs> for it to come yeah. through. That, you know, right, right. <laughs> take out the whole plume so or take out none of the plume. Yeah. And, and sometimes turn the plume blue. So like this looks like an engine failure to me, but like maybe there's some uh, some sort of instability going on. But it would be really dramatic to have like a some novel pulsed engine design beginning to launch. And I would be kind of shocked if they could keep it under wraps. I mean, not that I've looked that hard, but I feel like we would have heard about this pretty early and it would be like front and center on their Wikipedia page. So what would be the use cases for a pulsed engine like that? No idea. (laughs) (laughs) Theoretical engine design is beyond my ability to speculate. You want to tenderize your payloads before they reach your. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it would it would have to be like efficiency or or cost or something like who knows. But yeah, that ho- hopefully that was not unintentional because that was very dramatic. If that and, and they've done like static fires of this engine before, like if it performed this this out of scope, this out of family, it's, that's that really sucks. It's going to take a lot of work. And I feel like the other thing you see on the launch is that it pitches over immediately, pretty much. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if their control software just assumed that it had a level, what's it called? Like a smooth thrust. The audio, I haven't listened to the audio. Colin in the chat pointing out that the uh, the rocket 
it doesn't sound pulsy, <laughs> right? You don't hear the, yeah. uh, the, the loud rock. It would be boom. pretty shocking for this to be a, a video artifact, though. I, it, it could be pulsed, and it's not that it's like either spitting out exhaust or not, which is not what it looks like. I think it's changing color, um, going from transparent to blue to, to orange. Because I'm not going to lie. I mean, when it first gets off the pad, you don't see, when it first leaves, you don't mm. see any fire underneath it. You know, any any plume. So now let's talk about Firefly, the Firefly Paradox. Uh, ben, did you make that one up? What is that? Yes, is I that, did. Is that a um a reference to something? Because I don't get it. If no, it is. it's a cool title. It's 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 a description of the situation that we're in. So so we're talking about Firefly Aerospace, of course. Um, their first launch attempt was uh in September of 2021. Um, they call they they number their launches FLTA001 is is that one. Um back on the 1st of September, or the 1st of October, so just like 2 weeks ago, um they did FLTA002. Um and I I believe that's flight FLT is flight and then A for alpha. So uh flight 2 had three primary payloads. Um one of them was called PicoBus. Um, and PicoBus is a satellite deployer. So it also had five pocket cube uh, PicoSats on board it. So that's eight total objects on this, uh, on this flight. Uh, pocket cube, if you don't uh, remember and have to look it up like I did, uh, they are uh, half the edge length of a CubeSat. So it's uh, a one U pocket cube is one eighth the volume of a CubeSat. So um, these uh, eight payloads, well, three primary payloads were uh, intended to be placed into a 300 kilometer orbit. They did the launch. It was live streamed. Everything looked great. Um, and well, except for their stage separation, but we'll, we'll get to that. Um, and then Eventually, the the object showed up in uh, in space track, uh, the U.S. Space Forces um, object, low Earth object cataloging system, and uh, five items showed up, uh, which right isn't surprising. Uh, these are very small objects; they're not all going to be super visible on radar. Um, but uh, they picked up five items. They those five included the alpha upper stage. But the problem is they, instead of being in a 300 kilometer orbit, they were in a 220 by 275 kilometer orbit, uh, noticeably lower than they should have been. Um, and then Space Track also uh, has coded their reentry dates. Um, so the, the problem is that they just list them as like object A, B, C, D, E. So I didn't want to bother tracking down exactly which one was which except for one of them so uh three of the objects re-entered on the 5th of october the upper stage uh deorbited on the 7th of october and then the fifth of these five objects uh deorbited on the 12th and so that fifth one uh i wanted to know which one stayed up longest that's uh <laughs> probably uh tis serenity um so tis is uh teachers in space um, so this was like uh, just like a, a, an educational kind of thing. So all that is like fine. The paradox comes in with Firefly's uh, addresses to the public. So they put a, a press release, like a blog post up on their website on the 3rd of October. And I just wanted to read three quotes. Uh, first, 
uh, quote was successfully reached orbit and deployed customer payloads. Okay, well that's true. They were in orbit and they did deploy their customer payloads. So they didn't far, say so good. which orbit. Yeah. <laughs> uh huh. Exactly. Uh, the second quote: uh, Firefly is now the first company to launch and reach orbit from U.S. soil in only its second attempt. Sure, that's absolutely true. Those are still very big words, given the circumstances. And then uh, the third quote, uh, first and only U.S. commercial space company with a rocket ready to take customers to space in the highly desired 1,300 kilogram payload lift class. Also true, but just, you know, a little little bolder than deserved. Um, so Space News wrote an article, and they're not just looking at this blog post. They're looking at some of the... Um, some of the press release, like the actual press releases. And basically Firefly has said that this was a, a completely successful launch. I think they even tweeted it and just like, they've been asked like after other companies have said, Oh yeah, well we, we lost our vehicle. Uh, you know, Firefly's come back and said, Nope, it was, a, it was a success. Hmm. Um, and the, the specifics that they say, they say that uh, it really comes down to, uh, their flight requirements. They, you know, they say, well, we hit our flight requirements. We're calling it a success. And uh, Space News kind of paints this in, in, a, in an interesting light. They are reading this as they defined their success criteria as less than what their customers did. So, so Space News uh, quotes from a, a press release that I, I don't have access to or wasn't able to track down. And they quote Firefly as saying, our primary objective for the Alpha FLTA-2 mission was to achieve a predefined elliptical orbit following the second stage burn, which was 100% successful. The company added omitting the circularization burn mentioned in the press kit. So, so yeah, um, if you want to say that their primary objective was successful, I, I agree. Like, it sounds like they define their primary objective as getting into this elliptical orbit. Um, but I don't know why they wouldn't include the circularization burn. So Space News talks about them omitting the circularization burn. In this statement, they omitted the circularization burn that they had previously mentioned in, in a press kit. Um, but interestingly enough, the on their website, uh, like this blog post, they do talk about it. They say... The flight began with a nominal countdown, uh, then inserting into an elliptical transfer orbit, coasting to Apogee and performing a circularization burn with confirmation of the final payload deployment at approximately T plus one hours, which is one of the most technically challenging aspects of the mission. So I don't know if this this blog post was written two days after the launch. I don't know if it was like pre-written or what. Uh, maybe they forgot to go back in and, and retcon uh, what their standards were, but I mean, they say that they performed the circularization burn. So, I mean, maybe, it, maybe their engine lit up and then they shut down early. I don't, I'm not a hundred percent sure what's going on, but like they did not uh, successfully circularize. And like that, that's kind of the, that's kind of the paradox. I hope this, this makes sense to you now, David, like it's, they're saying that they were totally successful when their customers don't say that they were totally successful. And it doesn't sound like they hit, all of their objectives, even if they did hit their their primary objectives. I mean, do you want to set the precedent that having your payload in orbit, like telling the customers that your payload is 
not put in its correct orbit <laughs> is still a success as far as the company is concerned. That doesn't seem like good yeah. customer service. It seems just like an old-fashioned, it's just a live omission, right? I mean, they didn't mention that second part. Kind of like, hey, it would be good if we actually got the payload into a stable mm -hmm. orbit. Right. And like, it, it all comes down to messaging, right? Like, if you say, hey, like uh, um, Astra has had launch failure after launch failure, but nobody, nobody cares because they said they that's what they were going to do. Uh, like Kemp has been very clear, like we're pushing to do this fast and cheap and like we're going to fail. And so when when they fail, like at least on this show, we talk about it as a success, like they learned, um, you know, that now they're beginning to scope out how big the changes they need to make are. Okay, now they're refining what changes they need to make. And it just, it, it sucks for Firefly, who uh, it's, I think that what they're trying to do is be able to make these claims that they're the first company to launch and reach orbit in their second attempt, but they're not, you know, the first company to successfully launch on their second attempt. And like the first and only US commercial space company that can do this and this. Well, yeah, you can take customers to space, but you have not yet demonstrated that you can get them into the orbit that they paid for. And it's, I don't know, like, I don't, I don't want to harp on it too much. Cause like, you know, we always do the space is hard spiel or whatever. And, and I, I really don't like, I, I don't have a problem with failure. Like failures, failures fine. It's the, it's the spin. That's the problem. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, st I still wish them. So I hope that they can lay claim to all the, all the records and claims that they want. Like, great. Uh, just right now I, I feel a little grumpy. Yeah. I don't think it's a, a black mark or a loss of prestige for them to say these parts of our vehicle performed perfectly and we're excited about it and that gives us this superlative or something that we can brag about. Unfortunately, we weren't able to get the <laughs> payloads into the proper orbit, uh, but we'll figure out how to do that next time, I guess. And and that doesn't detract, I think, from any of these these earlier statements instead leaving that out though just it's it just seems weird because it's not like people who are outside of the kind of space world like my my parents aren't reading their press releases people mm -hmm. that read these press releases are i think the type of people who would see right through what they're doing and so it's not going to work although i don't know maybe there's uh vc people who would just see this uh all this praise and and not actually know that oh you mean all all the payloads just burned up through the atmosphere shortly after? Yeah, their most recent tweet about it was on the 8th. And they say, as part of our successful mission last week, we delivered these satellites into orbit. <laughs> They're like the UPS of space. They throw your <laughs> package <laughs> aggressively at your front porch and storm off. Yeah. Or, you know, deliver it to the wrong address. Um, so uh, the, the last vehicle to deorbit um, was uh, Serenity, right? And, um, so it, one of the things, it was like an amateur, uh, an amateur radio satellite. And so this tweet, they say students from around the world were able to communicate with it using PCs and ham radios, bringing space directly into the classroom. Oh, okay. But how, how much time did they have to do that? Like, <laughs> it's really funny. I, I, I just hope that this is, this is some PR person at Firefly, um, trying really hard to make make hay while the sun's shining no that's not it make lemons to, out to, of lemons or make lemonade out of lemons make lemons at oh there you go make lemons out of like make lemonade out of lemons mm. and and that's also a, a fine thing to do um it just 
I, I think there's m- maybe some miscommunication happening. Like, I really don't want to come to the conclusion that this is like actual uh, intentional spin, but who knows? Uh, so two more things to talk about the launch that I think are pretty cool. Interesting. Oh, Colin says lipstick on a pig. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Um, and, you know, a pig in orbit. Like, that's still cool. Right. So two two more interesting things to talk about. Um, first off, they are adamant that their stage separation uh, was fine, fine. It's just fine. Their specific words were like, it was within requirements and within expectations. The only thing is, if you watched the launch, you saw the second stage engine bell darn near ping off the inner stage which is also something that falcon 9 did or uh, falcon 1 did so like precedent uh but they refuse to admit that it is a problem which to me says that either uh they've designed the vehicle in such a way that they're actually okay with narrow separation margins uh alternatively maybe they saw uh indications that they might have uh a collision um and so they were expecting it and so they were hoping everything would be fine and here they didn't actually have an uh, a, a recontact so actually this is within requirements and is within expectations it's just that their expectations were in the wrong place or thirdly they are in straight up spin mode like i don't know which is the case and then the the second thing is um uh, EdTechSat15 was one of the payloads. Uh, it deorbited early. Um, and TechEdSat15 was actually up there to test a drag deorbit device. It was uh, a higher temperature device that could survive for longer in the atmosphere. And boy, what is the irony of a deorbit tech demo satellite deorbiting too early? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it overperformed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you get you get somebody on that team to do a similar statement about we were able to deorbit with remarkable efficiency, a hundred percent success of the mission, <laughs> leaving out some critical yeah. details again. Yeah, but you know, it, it's it's a test flight, or it's at least a very early flight. Uh, they're right; it was their second launch, and they they you know had a, a partial success, like the the major. The major things happened the way they were supposed to happen. Uh, just a, another on-orbit relight didn't work. But it was okay. That's hard. So, uh, Colin likens it to the uh, one of the Apollo launch abort tests where the booster failed uh, before sending the, the separation signal. And yeah, that was a successful failure where like the first stage is literally disintegrating <laughs> as the second mm-hmm. stage is, is zooting off. Okay. Well, uh, we... That's it for rockets having a tough time launching. Now rockets are also showing up at places. Exciting launches later this year. And the first of these, uh, I guess not the the rocket itself, but part of the rocket system. <laughs> Virgin Orbit's uh, Cosmic Girl, the carrier plane, showed up at New Key in Cornwall. So as far as launching from the UK, um, this would be the first orbital launch period from the UK. Sky Roar is trying to do the first vertical launch, but of course... Uh, Virgin Orbit, Cosmic Girl, Launcher One. These are uh, horizontal launches from the plane. And so this would be a rideshare nine mostly uh, UK payloads. And um, oh, and, and for uh, people, if you're not familiar, Cornwall, that's basically on the other side of <laughs> uh, the UK. This is uh, in England, the kind of little 
uh, peninsula, I guess, the little part that juts out in the southwestern side of uh, of England. But yeah, they're going to be targeting a launch in November. Congratulations if they do that. And I guess more generally, con future congrats to the UK for starting to have some orbital launches from their country. That's that's cool, but really, really cool. <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm more excited about this one, is that yeah. uh, Rocket Lab's uh, Electron that will fly from Wallops has shown up. And so it's there. We're getting closer. They're targeting for December at the end of the year. And so this would be uh, the first launch uh, from uh, from Wallops or Mars, uh, Mid-Atlantic Regional Spaceport. Um, the uh, Rocket Lab's got their, their pad. It's LC2. Uh, LC1, I guess, is the one in uh, New Zealand that they have been flying from. It'll be taking Hawkeye 360 um, uh, payload. I think this is a Earth observation, if I remember correctly. It's, it's crazy that this is their first Wallops launch. I could have sworn it was their second. You know what? So they've been talking about this for a long time, and it all gets huh. tracked back to this uh, NASA Autonomous Flight Termination Unit, or NAFTU. And so this is, as far as I could tell, NASA's next-gen, bigger and better uh, flight termination system, and Rocket Lab was testing the software. And this process, and I don't know if they're the only ones that were doing it, but Whatever it was, was basically dragging out a lot longer, and that's what was delaying it. Because this needed to be settled and squared, that they would be able to have this FTS system for an electron launch from Wallops before they could actually launch an electron from Wallops. So that's mm -hmm. why we've been talking about this for over a year now, at least. And so that's probably why it's easy to have mistake or to have thought that they had already done a launch because <laughs> haven't we been talking about Rocket Live at Wallops for a while now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right, so let's do three short and sweets this week. Ben, what is the first? All right, first up, uh, Lucy Flyby on Sunday the 16th. Just before sunset over East Africa, Lucy overflew the continent from west to east. On its trip in, Lucy was scheduled to use Earth and the Moon as calibration targets for its cameras. It also performed an engine burn to raise its periapsis about 50 kilometers to avoid stress on its still unlatched solar array. As it neared its periapsis, which was originally planned to be lower than the ISS, its schedule also called for photos of Ethiopia, where the Australopith fossil was found. Approaching Indonesia and Australia uh, right before it entered Earth's shadow, it was naked eye visible at an estimated first or second magnitude brightness. Once it emerged from Earth's shadow over Hawaii, it was visible to binoculars uh, in Western North America. While the public hasn't yet gotten an update on the calibration or surface images, the spacecraft has been downlinking data now that it's not directly in front of the sun, and I'm presuming that it is healthy. And then next up, test mission goes into safe mode. The test or transiting exoplanet survey satellite entered a protective state and suspended science operations after encountering a technical glitch. A preliminary investigation suggests an unexpected computer reset is responsible. On a highly elliptical orbit since 2018, the mission has discovered almost 6,000 exoplanet candidates to date, with over 250 confirmed by follow-up observations. And NASA is confident the spacecraft will make it through this glitch with recovery procedures underway and a hope of resuming normal operations in several days. Finally, China launches ASOS Solar Observatory. A Long March 2D recently lifted the Advanced Spaceborne Solar Observatory, or ASOS, on a successful ascent to a 720-kilometer sun-synchronous orbit. Designed to operate for four years, observing the sun 
the 888-kilogram spacecraft is nicknamed Kwafu-1, after a mythological giant who tried to chase the sun. ASOS's three instruments are a magnetograph to monitor the magnetic field of the entire sun, a hard X-ray camera, and a set of three Lyman Alpha telescopes. Okay, so let's move on to this week in spaceflight history, and we have five winners. Let's see the non-bonus content. Those <laughs> those winners are Uncle Willie and Valentin Frank, who I don't think we've heard from from a while. It might just be me, uh, as well as Ryan Regner. And then we have the bonus points going to uh, the Greek and Deathkin. So the clue, which I guess was just the right amount of difficult. This is well calibrated. Just like <laughs> Based on pretty well calibrated. <laughs> the, the, the clue was, let's start with a weather satellite. And so, yeah, we had three guesses. They couldn't figure out, you know, what this event had to do with a weather satellite, but two people did get it. So, congratulations. So, the event was in 2008, and it was the launch of the Chandrayaan-1, uh, the lunar spacecraft, as well as uh, the MIP, which we'll get to that in a second. Um, mm-hmm. I shouldn't jump ahead. But, yeah, I think we all know what Chandrayaan is, right? Uh, there's been one, there's two, and this is basically... Basically, an Israel spacecraft. And um, yeah, their first launch was in 2008. And this was actually their first deep space mission, actually. So pretty impressive. And it means a uh, lunar vessel, I believe. And that's in Sanskrit. So a little bit yeah, of uh, yeah, my, language my, there. Yeah, my buddy is uh, Indian. He was telling me how they just name it like everything, whether it's their spacecraft or their launch vehicles, they just give them the most basic descriptive name. So that's why, you know, mm-hmm. you got Chandrayaan for, uh, you know, moon. <laughs> and mm-hmm. then you've got uh, Mangayaan right. for Mars. And, uh, um, or, is, is, or is that or is that the one for humans? Ga- or Gangayaan, I think, is the one for humans. Gangayaan, yeah. And I think Mangayaan is the one for Mars. Yeah, so the spacecraft was based on uh, the IRS series bus, which uh, specifically, um, and this is where the clue comes in, specifically it was based on the Kalpana 1 satellite, which was formerly the Metsat 1 satellite, which was uh, a weather satellite. And um, it was renamed to uh, Kalpanasat because uh, this was just after the Columbia disaster. And uh, aboard was Kalpana Chawa. So uh, they basically named it after her, or I guess, you know, like in her honor. And so anyway, but yeah, that was a weather satellite. So that's where the clue comes from. Let's start with the weather satellite. But I guess a lot of people didn't get that. I know I didn't. <laughs> yeah, which which is, is really cool. So, I mean, hmm. let's get into exactly like how you can take a weather satellite and turn it into something that can, you know, like orbit the moon. Yeah, exactly. I am curious. <laughs> and it turns out it's, I guess... I mean, obviously, all things are difficult when it comes to stuff like this, but not that difficult. So basically, ISRO, uh, they already had satellites in GEO. And the idea was to basically just add more fuel and, you know, make some like adaptations to fit it out for uh, going to the moon. And so that's essentially what they did. Um, and one thing I wanted to point out was that the cost of the mission was actually just $40 million, which when I read that, I don't know if that means like what that all includes, but that's pretty impressive. Uh, 40, $48 million mission to the moon yeah if that's if that's all in that's incredibly low (laughs) and i don't know if that factors in the scientific payloads from other nations because obviously they would pay for that um you know as as far as the actual instruments themselves so i'm not sure how it all breaks down but i think no matter how you break it down 48 million dollars is impressive Mm -hmm. um the primary objective of the chandrayaan one mission was to find water on the moon so isro to that end worked both with nasa and isa uh, to add a whole bunch of scientific payloads. I'll talk a little bit about some of them, but there's quite a few of them. There's actually like 11 of them on uh, the Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft. And then there's also the Moon Impactor Probe, which is something else, and that has some instrumentation as well. So a very science-heavy little satellite. And this mission, now, in order to get it to the moon, they used a 
PSLV-XL. So this is like the extra large version of their standard PSLV launch vehicle. And uh, it's basically the same thing, but with longer, more powerful solids. So it, it looks like if you know what a PSLV looks like, it looks the same. It's just got these bigger uh, solids that kind of like run almost halfway up the length of the rocket. And that was the first launch of that particular launch vehicle, or I guess of the PSLV in that particular configuration. It was put into an initial uh, geostationary transfer orbit of 225 by 22,817 kilometers, and it was at a 17.9 degree inclination. And then over the course of 13 days, they did five burns and they raised the orbit to a 380,000 kilometer apogee. And there were reasons for this that basically, um, I didn't look too far into it, but basically they wanted to have multiple opportunities to do that transfer burn to the moon. And I don't know how this afforded them that, but it kind of gave them some flexibility. So it just wasn't like a straight shot. So it's some interesting orbital dynamics going on there. So after 13 days, they did the apogee burn for 13.5 minutes and they put the spacecraft into its initial lunar orbit of 7,502 kilometers by 504 kilometers. And then over the course of four days, they lowered the orbit down to 100 kilometers. So this is a pretty interesting way to, uh, you know, spin this out to the moon um, on this little makeshift, uh, well, not makeshift, but this little adapted weather satellite. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so let's talk about uh, the Chandrayaan-1 spacecraft. So it's about 1.5 meters, and it's like a cube shape. So it's just a big 1.5 meter cube, uh, and it has a 550 kilogram dry mass, and the power is provided by a single canted solar array. So it's just got this one solar array. It's the same shape as one side of uh, the cube, and that basically extends out on, you know, a little arm. Uh, now, the scientific instruments on board, I'm just going to list them here. We might go into a little bit more depth on some of them. There's a bunch of them. Uh, there's a terrain mapping camera, or the TMC, the hyperspectral imager, or the HI-C, uh, the lunar laser ranging instrument, or LLRI, uh, the high-energy X-ray spectrometer, or the HEX, the Chandrayaan-1 X-ray spectrometer, or the CIXS. I'm just reading off all of the abbreviations and acronyms because I know that's what we do. Um, <laughs> now, that particular instrument was actually uh, developed by the UK in collaboration with ESA and ISRO. There's a lot of payloads on here that are from other countries. The next one is the near-infrared spectrometer, or SIR-2, and that was developed by ESA. Then there's the sub-K EV atom reflecting analyzer, or the SARA, and that was developed by ESA. And then there's also the miniature synthetic aperture radar, or the MINISAR, and that was developed by NASA. Um, although I think it was actually developed for NASA by a bunch of other universities and organizations, but I didn't want to list them all. Um, but suffice <laughs> to say, that's an American instrument there. And so uh, this one is pretty interesting. So this Mini SAR. So SAR stands for Synthetic Aperture Radar. We've talked about those before. Um, it's a very lightweight one. And what it did was it actually used polarization properties of reflected radio waves to characterize the surface properties. And it gets a little bit complicated. I'm not the best with understanding how polarization works. We've talked about it before. Like I, you know, like understand all the terms and stuff. But basically, it emitted right-hand polarization radar. And then what was reflected back should have been approximately uh, the same thing except uh, left-hand polarization. And then there's a ratio called the circular polarization ratio, and that's what they measure in order to get an idea of what the surface features might be like. But with this instrument, they were able to detect water, which I thought was pretty cool. And this is all on the southern pole. And one thing I forgot to mention was this was put into a polar orbit. Um, so this is not like, you know, anything like an equatorial type of an orbit. Uh, this is all for finding water at the poles because that is where it was suspected to be. So this synthetic aperture radar found more than 40 small craters with ice and uh, about 2 to 15 kilometers in diameter, depending. And with this radar, you can't tell how deep they go. So you don't know 
how much ice might actually be there. But at a minimum, it's estimated to be about 600 million metric tons. So that's a lot of water ice. And uh, I believe this was the first confirmation of water ice on the moon, actually. So this is like why this is such mm. an, a big, important mission. I'm really glad that you said that because I was like, wait, when did this? I had to scroll up. I was like, 2008, they identified 40 craters with ice. Like, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you uh, confirmed that. Yeah, that was the first. That's <laughs> that's in, that's intense. Yeah. And I don't, you know, it's funny because I don't remember it being aboard an Indian spacecraft because it's something that I heard about from NASA because this was done with a NASA instrument, but it was aboard an Indian spacecraft. So, it was, you know, it's very much a collaborative effort. As all good science should be. Yeah. Oh, and then another NASA instrument that was aboard was the Moon Mineralogy Mapper. And that was uh, developed by Brown University and JPL. And this actually provided the first high-res spatial and spectral images or mapping of the entire lunar surface. So I guess this was the first time that they actually mapped out the whole surface. Again, this is going back to 2008 when I don't remember, you know, how aware I was of exactly what the state of, you know, like our knowledge of the moon was at that time. Because I just kind of know like vaguely that we know what the moon looks like. But I guess this was the first time that we had a full-on high-res map of it. So uh, this is like another big first here. Um, and that was provided by the M3 or the Moon yeah, Mineralogy that's, Mapper. that's high-res spectral map. Is probably the the new thing there. Okay. Well, it said it provided the first high res, both the spatial and spectral. Yeah. What they mean is that by taking the spectrum at different locations, if you look for certain lines, you can identify certain minerals or volatiles there. And so that's why it was a it's a spatial map, but you're able to code that spatial map as to where there's water deposits or this type of basalt or what type of minerals and whatnot. Um, okay. There. Okay. Because I thought it meant just more like surface features themselves. But that's no, not exactly. That yeah. Okay. yeah, like straight up composition, like what kind of thing are you finding there? Because from the spectra side of it, you, you see the, the absorption lines that correspond to that mineral. Yep. And, oh, and then also uh, the M3. So this particular instrument, it was actually a discovery program mission of opportunity, uh, which is a term I wasn't familiar with. So that basically means they had an instrument that they maybe would have flown on an actual like NASA mission, but they saw this opportunity to incorporate it onto some other nation's spacecraft, so they just did that. I thought that was kind of interesting. So they, it was basically a discovery program instrument that flew on some other nation's very first deep space mission, which I thought was pretty neat. Uh, and I think shows a certain amount of confidence. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're right. Um, to be clear, uh, missions of opportunity can also fly on American spacecraft. It's just like, okay. It's just that they wouldn't be like NASA yeah. spacecraft, perhaps. It's, yeah, no, no, no. Even if it's a NASA spacecraft, if it's like we developed this instrument. It mm -hmm. could fly on its own mission. Oh, but there's empty space. You know, this vehicle like had to drop an instrument because it wasn't ready. We can just, we can get in there. One interesting thing I read about Discovery Program missions is that they are focused on one particular thing. And since this mission is all about finding water on the moon, that is why it was incorporated. Because had it been obviously a mission to do something else, then they probably wouldn't have put it on the Chandrayaan because they wanted to get the most science that they could out of it. Um, and then there was also the last instrument on board the Chandrayaan spacecraft itself was uh, the Radiation Dose Monitor, or the RADOM. And this is actually from the Bulgarian Academy of Sciences. So that's your last international partner there. So let's move on to the Moon Impactor Probe. So this is kind of cool because um, I feel like these days everyone, like everyone wants to fly something into a moon or 
I guess, comet or asteroid, right? Um, <laughs> although this maybe was one of the earlier ones. So th uh, the objectives of this was to demonstrate technologies for reaching specific locations on the moon um, and also qualifying soft landing technologies and taking close range observations just prior to the impact, which would be on the South Pole. Um, I don't know how much of this was actually accomplished. I saw an interesting animation that I think was just kind of thrown together of this moon impactor probe hitting the surface of the moon and kind of just coming to a rolling stop. But it impacted at 1.69 kilometers per second. So I'm guessing that it wasn't like a gentle roll. So I was a bit confused by that animation. It would be interesting to know in what ways this helped uh, qualify soft landing technologies because there weren't any. It was basically just an impactor, like it says. Um, so don't know what or in what way that contributed. Maybe something to do with how it deorbited. But it did get some very close range observations as well, uh, just prior to impact. So that was cool. So it, um, the actual impactor itself is just like 37 by 37 by 47 centimeters. So not very big and it's 29 kilograms. So not very heavy. And it kind of sits on top of the spacecraft on top of one of the other instruments. And it's just this, uh, foil wrapped cube looking thing. Uh, pretty simple, but it had a little motor, uh, that was used to deorbit it. And then from there, it went into free fall. Um, I don't know what, like, that's the words that were used to free fall. I wonder if that was enough to actually deorbit it to that extent. I don't think so. It basically just had an orbital decay. I think that would be a better way of putting it, right? Because I think a free fall is like falling straight mm -hmm. down. I, free fall really just means that the force of gravity is the only thing acting yeah. on you. True. So, I if, mean, that's, if... that's, that's the technical definition, but <laughs> I mean, to me, free fall is like, something falling down straight like straight down but yeah that's true i mean i i guess all like any kind of an orbit is a free fall i think i think colloquially free fall is really easy to define as just you'd be floating if you're inside of a vehicle but yeah mm -hmm. david i i totally get what you mean i think a lot of people when they say free fall they mean straight down when it's mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. colloquially that's that's fine i guess yes yeah, so after a 25 minute descent uh, it impacted the surface, uh, like I said, at 1.69 kilometers per second. So let's just say 1.7 kilometers per second. Um, and it also carried a photo of the Indian flag. Um, so, and this actually, according to Wikipedia, at least, but like, you know, that's the first thing that I read. It said that this makes them the fourth nation to put their flag on the surface of the moon. Um, mm. again, I did this a little stuff. Speaking of being disingenuous, like <laughs> going back to a couple of segments ago, it seems like I guess they did. But um, I don't know if there's anything remaining of that flag since it really hit rather hard. But it's so, yeah, not like an upright standing flag. But yes, an image of the flag uh, was uh, carried down. Isn't that technically also the, 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 the Soviet unions, right? Like they had pennants or whatever that kind of also just exploded on the surface. And medallions, yeah. That's a good point. Obviously, there weren't any people that could have plugged it in. I doubt that. The, I'd never heard of any of their robotic missions like extending out a flag <laughs> and shoving that in the ground. So I'm assuming it was very Daffy Duck. So another list I'm seeing, I don't know how reliable it is, is that it starts with the United States, then the Soviet Union, then China, then Japan, then Israel, then India, which is number six. So it might be the sixth nation to have their flag on the moon. Well, I mean, Israel and like, yeah, I agree with Colin. Like if, if the flag isn't intact, how can that count? Well, that's kind that, of the way that I see list it. Must be including Israel and uh, yeah, you know, Bereshit and uh, Chandrayaan uh, two lander, six country to get flag particles on the moon. 
And uh, so one instrument, one interesting instrument, well, there were three scientific instruments on board uh, the MIP, or the MIP, I guess that's how you would say it. Uh, there was uh, the radar altimeter. Um, then there was uh, a video imaging system, um, which I think uh, had some pretty cool images of uh, that final descent. Then there was also the chase, which is the uh, Chandra's uh, Altitudinal Composition Explorer. This is a mass spectrometer, and it was able to measure trace amounts of gaseous water during descent. And that was later confirmed by the M3. So, yeah, gaseous water on descent. So there's just, you know, this very incredibly thin amount just above the South Pole. There's, you know, just enough to detect, I suppose, because like, I can't imagine that it would be much. But um, that's actually how they were able to first confirm it. Although, or that's the... First indication, but it had to be later confirmed by the M3 readings. But because a mass mass trans a mass spectrometer, right? That's that's an mm-hmm. in situ type of measurement. It's not a remote sensor, right? So basically, it was hitting these uh, you know very small amounts of this gases. It was like you know flying down. To, yeah. yeah, for twenty five minutes. I mean, I can't. I got to say, I'm, I'm impressed that you know they decided to do this because they would get enough data in twenty five minutes to be. Uh, valuable and worth it, but evidently that was the case because this is like the cheapest mission ever, so I can't possibly yeah. fault them for going overboard. Yeah, so let's move on to some of the issues that they had, however. Uh, so there were some thermal problems. So the Chandrayaan-1, it actually began experiencing higher thermal loads than predicted, and that started in late November. So this is about like a month later. The star trackers on board failed as a result. So they had to raise the orbits because what was happening was um, basically like ISRO had calculated that the temperatures of the spacecraft when you're 100 kilometers above the surface would be about 75 degrees Celsius, but it actually ended up being more. And so they didn't have adequate shielding. That's an interesting thing that I never thought of taking into account is that I wouldn't have thought that the moon would give off that much heat. Um, but it makes a big difference. I guess if you're 100 kilometers just above the surface, yeah. uh, you can experience some pretty high thermal loads as a result of that. Right. They did vacuum chamber thermal testing, but they didn't do a very good job of that. So that was a little miscalculation, not enough thermal shielding. And so they had to raise the orbit to get some distance and bring that temperature back down. Once they did that, it was fine. The initial reason that was given by ISRA was that this was done intentionally to um, get a better view of the moon's surface. Uh, and then later on, it was confirmed by someone else that, no, that wasn't the case. It was because of this thermal problem. So they kind of like, I guess, like fibbed that a little bit, it, it seemed. Or maybe there was just a miscommunication. Uh, not sure. But uh, this did allow for imaging uh, much wider swaths of the surface. Probably not in as much detail, though. And they were able to do some further studies of the uh, gravitational field variations and uh, the orbital perturbations, hard to say. Hmm. Um Basically, uh, getting, I guess, different readings because that's something that they were doing at the 100 kilometer altitude. But then if you raise the orbit, perhaps, you know, uh, you can interpolate that data. So I guess maybe as a result of these thermal problems, I don't know if they all went away or maybe this is due to something else. But basically, communications were just like abruptly lost. And this was on the 20th of August of the next year. Uh, so almost, well, not quite a year, but after 312 days, they lost communication. And so uh, I think one day later, they just called it, and they said that's the end of the mission. They were not able to reestablish communication. So um, a rather abrupt end, and uh, yeah, it was planned to be a two-year mission. So, I mean, but again, for the amount of money that uh, they put into this, this is, a, I think, a pretty successful mission that did some really, like, really discovered, discovered a lot of important yeah. things. Yeah, <laughs> like ice on the moon and took these uh, high-res images and uh, or spectral images. I mean, like, it's a really impressive mission and this is all with uh, a spacecraft it's basically just based on a weather satellite bus 
So <laughs> that's a pretty cool mission, I think. But yeah, that is your this week in spaceflight history. Yeah, I am damn impressed with Chandrayaan one. And then they and then they did a part two, which maybe we'll talk about at some point. Mm-hmm. Thank you, David. That was uh, that was really good. I wound up going off on my own little uh, research tangent uh, regarding uh, hyperspectral imaging, but like. I, I will never fully understand hyperspectral imaging. Like it's, it's always going to be something that distracts me. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, um, next week is going to be the 25th to the 31st of October. Um, Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. In 2014, swan song. Great. Okay. So if you have a guess as to which swan swung is swinging uh shoot us uh, uh, give us your guess shoot us a tweet use the hashtag this week sf and good luck everybody all right so let's move on to upcoming spaceflight events five events this week and ben what's the first right so the first is a starlink uh this is mm-hmm. 436 so shell 4 launch 36 i believe um launch library is saying it's 52 i don't think that number has changed in a while so i'm a little suspicious of it because I think they tend to to drift around a little bit. But in any event, uh, this Starlink launch is happening on Thursday, October 20th at 1445 hours UTC. This is going off of a Marine, a notice to Mariners. Um, so I, I believe this is fuzzy and not a uh, an instantaneous launch window that we definitely know is 1445. And then next up on October 21st, we've got the first of two Soyuz launches, although they're different letter, <laughs> different styles of Soyuz. Um, this one is a, a, a 2.1B with a Frigate M upper stage. And this will be taking three uh, communication satellites to LEO. And so uh, again, that's Friday, October 21st with a launch at 2306 UTC. And this one will be one of those rarer ones flying out of Ostochny Cosmodrome. And so that's way out in the eastern side of the nation. And then next up on October 22nd, we have the launch of another OneWeb. Uh, this is OneWeb 14, and this is a batch of uh, 36 satellites. So uh, another batch for the uh, global internet broadband service. Um, this is launching aboard uh, AGSLV Mark III, uh, launched by ISRO, and it's launching from uh, Srihari Koda. Uh, from India, from the Satish Dhawan Space Center, uh, second launch pad. That's interesting. Second launch pad. <laughs> not, not, not launch pad two, but second launch pad. Going into a polar orbit. Uh, the launch time for that is at 1837 UTC. So, uh, yep. Good luck to them. And just, I don't know how far along they are. The total amount looks like it's supposed to be 648 microsatellites. I haven't been keeping track, but one web seems to be well on their way there. So I think they're like two thirds of the way. Two thirds. Okay. Yeah. I feel like I've heard that number. I could mm-hmm. be wrong. All right. After that, we're going to be going to the ISS. It's Progress MS-21 or 82P if you are working for NASA. So this Progress is going to be launching on a Soyuz 21A on Wednesday, October 26th at 0-119 hours UTC. Um, it's also going to be covered on uh, NASA TV. Uh, their coverage will start at 8 p.m. Eastern. And then the the launch time in Eastern time is 8.20 p.m. uh, Eastern time. And then finally, we've got our second batch of Starlinks for the week. And so this is... (laughs) I knew there was another one coming. (laughs) Yeah. There always is. Yeah. And so it's a little fuzzy the exact time that it'll launch, but it is currently slated for October 26th. 
and this would be uh, group 4-37, um, and it will be a cape launch. And yeah, keep an eye out again uh, on October 26th. Oh yeah, it's worth mentioning that the, that 436 was also or is also going out of Cape Canaveral. So potentially they're doing Thursday to Wednesday, like mm. under a week. Six That's days, cool. yeah. Um, and and they're both fl- like it's slick 40, like it's the same launch pad. That'd be that'd be pretty cool if uh, if they pull that one off. All right. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. All right. And with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to Calvin Stoop, Death Kid, Ryan Rigner, Mike, Kenton, Gopal, Colin, Greek, Chubby, Stanley Fuyu, and Veden for joining our recording session today and helping us make correction firms on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com slash support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you all next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.